Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the In Context and Culture podcast. So glad that you're joining us once again. Hey, if you keep watching and keep listening, we are thankful for you. Um, over the last couple of weeks, we've heard back from just a few different people. Um, we posted the story of Jonathan, uh, someone named Danny. Hey, Danny, if you're listening to the podcast, thanks for listening in. I know your words that Corey shared with me were super encouraging. Uh, so thank you very, very much. Uh, thank you to everybody who's been listening along. Uh, we hope this podcast has been a blessing to you as you study the word and consider uh, how we might be faithful church members, faithful church leaders, and faithful uh, church um, men and women. So um, we are continuing our study of the book of Revelation in season two. Uh, we find ourselves once again in the seven churches for actually for the first time to say for the last time. Uh, this is the last of the seven churches, the church at Laodicea. Um, a couple things as we get going, just as reminders about the seven churches. Uh, the seven churches are found in chapters two and three of the book of Revelation. There's seven real churches that existed in Asia Minor that John um, was writing to. Um, and, uh, they're also seven, um, being, uh, meaning totality, uh, seven representative churches. So just because these were written to seven churches, uh, of their day does not mean they are not four churches of our own day. Um, so, uh, as you see things within the letters of these churches, you're going to find things that maybe your particular church struggles with our church in America struggles with churches in Africa, whatever it may be struggle with. And, uh, we should look with open eyes and ready hearts to repent of maybe some things that, um, we're struggling with that other churches were, um, we should heed and hear the warnings of Christ. So, um, these are practical um, personal letters for local congregations to hear and heed as they await the return of Christ. Um, in these letters, seven of them, uh, some of the churches are um, uh, mentioned for only doing good things. That's not mean they're, that I mean they're perfect. Some of the churches are only mentioned for doing bad things. Um, and that doesn't mean that they don't have uh, hope. Uh, Laodicea is a particularly bad church, the, the, the seventh of all the churches that will be in today. Um, the structure of these letters uh, is pretty consistent, though it may uh, not have one of these things. They typically follow a five-fold um, structure, and that structure looks like this. An introduction, which is a characterization of Christ, Christ's character. Um, then there's a commendation, what the church is doing well, a critique, what the church is not doing well or not how it's not being faithful, uh, a command, whether to repent or to continue to, the, to do the works that they're doing, and then a call to conquer. Um, those that remain faithful to the Lord will conquer as the Lord has already conquered. They will be with him forever. So characterization of Christ, commendation, critique, command, and call to conquer. So we're going to walk through those things uh, uh, verse by verse in chapter 3. Uh, verses 14 through 22, the church at or in Laodicea. Corey, do you want to read it for us this morning? You bet. You bet. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, beginning in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen 
and salve to, to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So as we're starting here, looking at the character of Christ, I think uh, we look at this and we, we, we find an interesting title because Christ is the words of the amen. Now, that you don't usually think about that as a title. That is usually a, an affirmation of the truth. We as preachers love to hear that whenever, whenever we're preaching and somebody says amen, like that is, that's an affirmation of what's being said. But here, Christ hey. uses it of amen. himself. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> and so Christ uses this term of himself. And the only other place in scripture that it's used is Isaiah uh, 65. And there it's in some versions, the NASB uh, and also the NIV, it's interpreted um, God of truth or God of amen in some other translations. And so uh, there's, a, there's this idea that it's expounded here in the, in the faithful and true witness and in looking at those two terms, faithful and true witness, that we need to remember that the witness, the English word witness, the, the root of that in Greek is martyrus, where we get the word martyr. And so there's this, I, there's this understanding that, that Christ is faithful unto death, just like Antipas was in the church at Pergamum. He was a faithful and true witness. That's the way Christ was described back in chapter 1. Um, as he reveals himself. And so that really, you cannot disconnect amen from faithful and true because he is the ultimate affirmation of truth, but you also can't separate faithful and true witness from the beginning of God's creation. Because if Christ was, if Christ was the one who um, was the faithful and true witness, completely faithful unto God, even to the point of death, you find these words, the beginning of God's creation, also in the book of Colossians, um, chapter one, where Paul describes him. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And so the, the faithful and true witness is the one that is, has, has given his life, but also the one who has been resurrected. And he's, he's the beginning of God's new creation. So, Ultimately, it will come to fruition whenever there's a new heaven and a new earth, but, but Christ is the beginning of this new creation. And so you don't get into the new creation apart from Christ. And again, as we remind everybody each week, these are the very words that the church at Laodicea needed in that moment because they needed to wake up to realize who he was and that he is the only way that they could get there. So anything you'd like to add on that? Yeah, I just think that that word amen is really unique, right? Um, as a title, as you mentioned, Isaiah 55 is where we see it elsewhere. Um, I was reading Robert um, Mounts and his commentary in the book of Revelation, and something he says is, um, as a personal designation, it means one who is in perfect conformity with what is true and right and in reality. And one thing we see about the church at Laodicea, not only are they um, probably, we could say, um, on a scale the wicked of them, uh, most wicked of all the churches, um, what they see about themselves 
is not what the Lord sees about them, right? Um, they, their self-confidence is not in conformity with what is reality, right? Um, they are not seeing what is true about themselves, what the Lord sees. Um, they say they are rich. The Lord says they are poor. Um, they say they are prosperous. The Lord says um, they're shameful, Right. And so um, I, I think that's helpful in seeing not only, hey, is the Lord present with his churches, but the Lord perceives what we may try to hide and what we may not even see ourselves. Um, sometimes we're so stuck in our own sin or sometimes our judgment on what um, is good about ourselves is actually um, uh the, the Lord can see what, whether first off, that's a good judgment and what is actually true of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's great. Um, I think it is interesting because I only say that to say that the way that Christ is characterized also tends to have pressing um, connection with the problem of that church, right? Mm -hmm. um, Christ is said to be this because the church is struggling with this, you know? And so, um, yeah, I think that's helpful because, hey, Christ is not only the encouragement we need, um, characterizes what we need, um, both encouragement and rebuke. Yeah. Um, so let's go to what we don't find here um, in the book. And that is the second part of what is typical in the structures to the churches. And that's commendation. There is no commendation whatsoever in the letter to the Laodiceans. Now we've said before that there's not a, um, not a specific part of a letter. I think we said to um, Sardis, I can't remember who, maybe Pergamum uh, of commendation. Uh, yet in all those other churches, there was at least some who were faithful or a remnant or um, some who were following the Lord. In the church, in the letter to the church at Laodicea, uh, it is not mentioned in any way that they are being obedient, any of them. Um, and so this is a, a sharp, rebuke against this church in this section of chapter three it says this in verse 15 the lord says once again i know something about you i know your works you are neither cold nor hot would that you were either cold or hot so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold i will spit you out of my mouth um this is one of those word pictures that we probably heard about when we think of the book of revelation in fact whether we know that there's seven churches and seven letters to seven churches we probably know um what um we've heard about churches that are lukewarm right that the church will spit out the lukewarm church um so what's so interesting about this passage um and i'm thinking in my own head to a uh, time uh, david platt i heard him preach once and he said this was actually the first sermon i preached uh and i was in high school he said and um, I took a big swig of water and spit it out on the stage toward the students that I was preaching to. Uh, and so David Platt says, first off, that was probably a bad idea. Second reason it was a bad idea is I shouldn't have been preaching at that time. Right. So um, <laughs> he, but, his first sermon, he preached over Revelation and spit out water. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, yeah. That's in impressive. front of people. I mean, I've had people puke. <laughs> um, you've seen that. But um, uh, yeah. So um, what's so interesting about this passage is typically the way we view it with our eyes walking into it. Okay. is hot is good. Like I want to be on fire for Jesus. And so cold is like frozen, chosen, 
not doing anything for the Lord, um, maybe even cold in heart toward the Lord. So cold is mm-hmm. bad, hot is good. So, um, so they're doing okay. They're just maybe apathetic. They're not all the way cold. Um, they're partway hot. They're just finding themselves kind of wishy-washy in the middle. Well, I think we need to, to have a second glance at what is actually being said here. I don't think they're wishy-washy in that they're somehow good and somehow not good. In fact, they're the only church that there's no good mentioned. Um, so a few different things. Um, the letters to the church of Revelation often mention geographical um, uh, references. Um, uh, you know, last week we talked about how um, they, they would be a pillar in the temple of God. And, and we think of the earthquake that had happened years prior. And so they're, they're using, uh, John often uses geographical um, and uh, current cultural issues and brings them to bear to the church, right? Or, or, or yeah. Um, so what we find with the whole hot and cold is Hierapolis, which is not far from them, uh, um, a city not far from them, was a large plateau with hot springs on it um, where hot water would bubble and um, uh, would actually pour down the side of that um, plateau. Um, uh, it was a mountain plateau. And then uh, not far from them also was the church at Colossae, which the letter of the, to the book of um, or the, uh, the book of Colossians, the letter to the church at Colossae uh, was um, uh, those people. Uh, they had a mountain spring, really cold water. And so uh, Laodicea finds itself in between those two. So it's neither like Heropolis and neither like Colossae. Um, uh, it's often said that cold water has um, qualities of it that are attractive because of its purity, uh, its readiness to drink. Um, it's helpful even on a hot day, uh, hot water. Um, it's uh, seen as a tonic um, when you're very cold uh, or even sick. Um, it's also uh, soothes aching muscles if you get into it um, and you're sore. And so both of these had things that provided um, uh, provisional things for people of the day. And what we find Laodicea is it doesn't have either. It's neither this, neither that. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, um, what's said about Laodicea too, and you can elaborate on this, was that they had to pipe water in because there was no freshwater source. And so they would pipe it in. But by the time it got to Laodicea, it was not healthy to drink. Um, and so uh, do you want to elaborate just a little bit on that? Well, uh, yeah, I will for just a second. But but I think one thing too is important is, you know, somebody listening to this may think, well, man, I don't have I don't have all those resources, those commentaries that that are going to tell me about Colossae and Hierapolis or and all of that background material. So, but but you can look at the passage itself in the second half of verse sixteen, and Christ says, "Would that you were either hot or cold." Well, he wouldn't be wishing that people would be cold toward him, and so right. you right. know both of these things have to be beneficial. They can't, one of them can't be a negative because Christ is not wanting people to be cold toward him. And so, but going back to uh, what you were talking about, as far as the water goes, um, it's not just a, it's not just a fact that, uh, I assume this is what you're talking about, but um, it's not just the fact that there was zero water in Laodicea. Right. Um, There was water there. But it had it had a content. I think it was sodium carbonate or something like that. But anyway, it was it was putrid to taste, and so literally it would induce vomiting. And so they had to they had to pump that water in, and it was this 
from these other places. And by the time it got there through those aqueducts, right. um, it could be, it could be um, lukewarm. And so yeah. again, John is using those images and Christ is using those images that they are dealing with daily um, to, to prove his point here. Yeah, and he's not saying that they're halfway something. They are neither this nor that, as you've already yeah. pointed out. So that's why they are, are, are worthy of being spit out. They are, um, maybe as, as, as it gets to an application here, they are ineffective. Um, mm-hmm. They um, are not providing hot water that could be helpful um, for the health of individuals, um, for um, the uh, to, to help them with whatever condition they are. They're not providing pure water. Um, so it's basically saying, Hey, you are not um, in any way spiritually helpful, right? You're not, yeah. you're, you're neither this you're, nor you're that um, you are spiritually good for nothing. Right. And that's why he's so strong to say, I will spit you out of my mouth. I mean, how, how would you like to be the church, right? That the Lord sees. And he says, I want to puke. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, and yet that's not how they see themselves. So there's a reality that they do not see here. Verse 17, for you say, this is what the Lord saying is about Lord is saying about, um, how the Laodiceans see themselves. You say Laodiceans, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So they were, um, a rich church living in a very wealthy environment. Um, looking back last week, we saw that um, the imperial um, government, the Romans, helped um, uh, Philadelphia uh, rebuild after an earthquake. Uh, Laodicea did not need that. They had plenty of money. They were able to rebuild themselves after an earthquake, earthquake they had in about AD 60. And they're ve- very wealthy. And the church thought themselves to be very wealthy as well. What help do we need from the Lord? We're rich. We're doing well. They are not seeing their own spiritual state. They were as apathetic as they were affluent, right? As much money as they had, they did not have uh, good works. Um, They think, uh, I mean, one commentator said, he says, um, no church is worse off because no church thinks better of themselves than Laodicea and has far worse a grip on their own uh, ungodliness, right? Um, Laodicea has no idea how they're doing, right? Um, uh, I'll mention this too. Um, The world, when you look back at the second church mentioned in in the letters to the seven churches, um, Smyrna is unique because um, the world saw Smyrna as this uh, persecuted, weak, poor church, but the Lord saw that church as prosperous and wealthy, yeah. Right. Um, so we saw there that the Lord's view of um, success is not worldly, but faithfulness to him. Right. Um, the way that the world views success is not the way that the, that God views success. Right. He doesn't look for worldly success. He looks for faithfulness. So um, here, uh, while the world was wrong about Smyrna's poverty, Laodicea was wrong about its own wealth. It was poor, truly. Um any thoughts you have about verses 16 and 17 together? Well, I, I think that um, I think we have to understand that they thought because of their material prosperity that they were favored by God. Um, and that's 
that's not completely out of the realm of understanding if you if you go back to the Old Testament because part of the part of the promise to the Israelites was material prosperity in the promised land. But even in the Old Testament, whenever they began to uh, idolize the gift over the giver, that's whenever they were rebuked and uh, eventually ended up being dispossessed of the land. And so it's not, it's not, possessions aren't bad. And I think we have to be real careful not to project that. Um, It's not that possessions are bad or that God doesn't want us to have possessions. It's that he doesn't want those things to possess us. Right. Like whenever they have, whenever they have our heart, like that's the problem is that whenever that materialism and, and I think we have to be careful today because man, if the affluence of the Laodicean people were the thing that was the thing that blinded them to the goodness of God, how much more susceptible are we in the 21st century in North America? I mean, we are, we are so much more susceptible because we are so much more affluent than they would have been. Uh, in that day. And uh, one thing I read, uh, it's a, uh, uh, a term that this uh, Anne Sukhanoff, I believe is her name, um, she defined uh, affluenza, like we talk about influenza today, right? And the, and the disease it is, but she says now in North America, we have this thing called affluenza. And I'm just going to read you her definition. She says, it's an array of psychological maladies, such as isolation, boredom, passivity, and lack of motivation engendered in adults, teenagers, and children by the possession of great wealth. Hmm. And so, man, is that not the condition of the church in America at large, I would think. Hmm. And so like, we, we have to be super careful because you know, money doesn't buy you happiness. There, there's more psychotherapists and psychologists in the United States probably than anywhere else in the world. And mm-hmm. that wouldn't, that wouldn't be the case if money was the thing that brought you fulfillment and happiness or just material possessions in general. I don't, I don't think we need to look at this idea of saying I'm rich when you are actually poor. I don't think that's just material wealth. I think it's trusting in general in all material things rather than trusting in God. And so it's trusting in what's seen rather than unseen. Um, Mm. And so, um, yeah, that's all, that's all the rest I've got, I guess on 16, 17. Yeah. I would just look at 17 and um, I'm reminded in verse 17 uh, and considering their blindness and considering also the fact that um, it wasn't just the leaders that are being rebuked. It wasn't just, the majority of the church that's being rebuked here. It's the entirety of the church. Um, You see in Jesus's sermon on the plain in Luke chapter seven, which I'd preached on to our students this past week, um, this weird, uh, truthfully kind of a a weird, um, almost like a parable um, in this passage. So this is the all famous passage um, that begins with judge not, right? Judge not lest you be judged, right? Mm -hmm. Which people usually take the two verses to dismiss, um, potentially helpful rebuke against their own sin so that they can justify their own sin and continue to live in it. Right. Um, I'm not saying that's what always happens, but it's oftentimes used the words judge not to basically say, you can't step into my life and tell me what to do. What's interesting about that passage, however, is um, while it is a grave warning about judging um, uh, rightly, godly and carefully, right. um, It does actually teach you in that passage to judge. Um, it says, first take out the log that's in your own eye, then you will be able to clearly see to take out the speck that's in your brother's eye, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
So we are instructed to take care of one another, um, to uh, lead one another well, to point out um, things that are wrong in one another, to confront sin, right? Um, first in ourselves and then in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ in our church. And it seems like, and I could be wrong, but there was a lack of confrontation happening in this church, right? Which is, I think, very similar to, to, to our churches, right? I mean, I would argue that the reason so many of your churches are as complacent as they are today is primarily due to individuals within a church's refusal or even as a church as a whole, their refusal to confront sin in their own lives and in the lives of others. They never get to the lives of others because they don't confront sin even in their own lives, right? Forgetting that not only does God desire our purity, but he demands it, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, then over time, our churches become filled with people that look no different than the world, bringing just as bad a reputation on the Lord as uh, Nehemiah saw with a Jerusalem without walls, a reproach upon the Lord. Um, so people maybe walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, yet have no desire for the Lord, no desire to meet with his people, no pursuit of holiness, facing an eternity, not with Christ, but without him, having never been confronted, right? So sometimes confrontation is loving and biblical, but here's the why I bring that up. Because in that passage in Luke chapter six, it says this, um, it says, um, here we go. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they both not fall into a pit? Hmm. A disciple is not above the teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. And so even the leaders are blind in here. And so they're yeah. leading one another to destruction. Um, they have not seen the sin in their own, their, own, their own selves. And so they're not helping with others in the sin that they're struggling with. It is a church headed toward destruction blindly, right? Um, primarily probably because many of them are not willing to confront their own sins, right? And are scared to confront someone else's because of sins that they have themselves. How shocking would it have been if you were in the Laodicean church? Like you think you're doing well, like you Mm -hmm. think you're being blessed by God. And all of a sudden you get this letter from not just the hand of John, but from Christ who says that this is your true condition. I mean, that, that would have just been devastating in both a hard way and a good way. Um, but man, what a shock. So you say harder, but good way. That's mm-hmm. interesting, right? Because it goes on to say this verse 18, I counsel you to, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Um, but it says, I counsel you to do this, right? Which is the command, but, um, and we need to go back to that. But you said hard, but good. Verse 19 says, those whom I love, I repeat, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Mm -hmm. So can we look for a second at verse 19? Because I think you pointed out something great here. Verse 19 helps us see why verse 18 is there in some sense. Yeah. Right. So verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. So the Lord here is saying, I love you. Repent. Yeah. Right. Um, what, what would you have to say to verses 19 and 18? You said something great about what repentance looks like in verse is, is in verse 18. Yeah. I just, I think that's verse 18 again is a word picture, just like, just like they gave us a word picture in verse 15 about being lukewarm. And then in verse 17 showed us really what that lukewarmness was being pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Um, then here in verse 18, you've got this word picture. And, and he's just told him in verse 17, you're poor. But then he says, he says, buy from me these things. Well, we, we can buy from Christ and it doesn't take any money. Yeah. 
um, it takes faith is, is I guess the currency uh, that you would choose there. But, but he says, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire. Now, Laodicea had, was rich in banking. They were rich because they had this textile industry um, and they were, they were rich because they had a medical school there that an uh, ophthalmology school, if you will, that they had this powder that would help with eye disease. And so he's show, showing them here that all of these things that you think you can get from the world, you can only get from me because you need to buy from me gold. You need to buy from me white garments. You need to buy from me salve to anoint your eyes so that they can truly be rich, that they can clothe themselves and, and hide their shame of nakedness. And so that they can see. So, so like all of these things that they think that they can get from the world, Christ is saying, no, you, you absolutely cannot get that. You cannot be self-sufficient. I'm the only one that's going to bring you satisfaction. And so I'm the only one that can meet all of your needs here. And so and isn't this, that, this yeah, isn't, okay. isn't so, so on that, right. They thought that they had something they didn't have. Now we talked about their blindness there, but um, they thought themselves, I would assume to be pretty spiritually strong. Yeah. Um, and probably because they had money mm-hmm. and it wasn't just maybe that they, um, Maybe they even try to justify that. Like, uh, we don't love money, but um, I mean, we're, we're using our money to have a huge budget and a big building and do all these different types of things, right? I mean, money provides, quote unquote, provides, you know, security, safety, prosperity, a name for ourselves, right? Um, uh, and they could have justified to say, hey, this is how we're going to exist in the future. Mm-hmm. Not realizing that the way that you exist for all eternity is not by collecting materials, right? Um, instead, the great reversal basically says by giving them to the Lord, by giving yourself to the Lord. And so you have that, um, that old parable about the guy who stored his wealth in barns. And he said, you fool, this night is required of you. Your soul is required of you, yeah. right? And so money cannot save you, right? And, and there's probably an issue. They were, they were a business with a biblical name. They were happy with goods and no godliness. They thought themselves to be rich. And maybe even they thought themselves to be rich unto the Lord because of how they were using their money even, mm-hmm. but their wealth was deceiving, right? And wealth is often de- deceptive, right? Um, don't, don't you think that's been unknowingly maybe the philosophy of churches maybe in the last 70 years? Like, because how did you count success in a church? There was buildings and budgets and backsides in the pews. I see, and I've so always like, heard butts. So, well, I mean. yeah, I was just trying to be gentle for some people <laughs> no, that good. might have no, sensitivity. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> but um, so, so, so like, you know, like we're, I think the church today is in danger of being this Laodicean church if we're not careful. Um, because if your metrics for for judging success in your church are those three metrics, then I think you you can see a, a mirror here uh, with the Laodicean church. And man, if if that's the metric we use, and it's the same as what's in the Laodicean church, we've got to hear, "You make me sick. I want to spit you out of my mouth." Mm. And that's hard to hear. Um, we, we need to, we need to repent of that. So they, they had a, they had security because of their wealth, security, safety, prosperity, and a name to, 
to save them for a future they may not have. Yeah. Right. I mean, they thought their money was best. I mean, I'm implying some things here that is implicit, but they thought their money was best suited maintaining a place than ministering to a people. And here's their warning. Right. And it's a warning to all of us. Right. You may live your whole life um, uh, uh, doing your best to protect yourself um, in every way possible, financially trying to accrue and secure different means by which um, you can continue to exist all the while your existence is fading away because you're finding your existence, the pinnacle of it in these things and rather than in the Lord, right? Living with a closed hand to our own stuff rather than an open hand to the Lord. People will die for things, but those that die for things will die without them, right? Um, yeah. I, I wrote this down earlier and I think it's just, um, worth saying, and I don't know what point I was going to say it, but um, one with no passion for the Lord should not believe themselves to be pleasing to the Lord and should not presume to expect protection from the Lord, right? No passion for the Lord should not believe themselves to be pleasing to the Lord. No how matter big, how their budget what is, you know, no how much self-sustaining they are, right? Self-sustaining they are. They should not believe themselves with no passion to be pleasing or to expect protection. You know, you know, one thing I think is important here too, is because I think some people would look at this passage where Christ says, um, I will spit you out of my mouth. And they would look at that and think, well, that means, that means I can lose my salvation. Like if mm -hmm. God, if, if he spits yeah. me out of his mouth, then I'm no longer his, all of those things. But Right. If we come back down here to verse 19, where he says, I reprove uh, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Like that's a refutation of that whole idea that, that, that God's going to somehow uh, cast you off. Um, yeah. Because, because he does love you and he's, he's saying these things to them so that they will repent. That's always the uh, understanding of discipline in the scriptures is that those who are his, he will discipline. I mean, it says that in Hebrews 12, I think. Yeah. So Proverbs three is where that comes from that he, um, if he's going to address you as sons, he's going to discipline you. You see, but as you mentioned, Hebrews 12, it says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son um, that he loves. Right. Um, there's still churches. These people, Laodicea is still a church. He still loves that church. And if he would not discipline them, it would be more of a dire situation than he is yeah. and when he is willing to discipline them. In fact, that's what it says in Hebrews 12. It says, um, God is treating you as sons as he disciplines you. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? It says, if you're left without discipline, which, uh, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. So, we ought to not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord in the sense right. that, um, Hey, this is his love. And he still sees us as his sons. Yeah. Right. Um, if he's disciplining us, that means we're his children. Um, in fact, you have a warning from the Lord in uh, Romans chapter one, that basically says um, this warning of his wrath is basically, Hey, I'm removing any sort of um, um, conviction upon the people. You can have what you, you want. You're not my people. You can have whatever you pursue. Right. And the Lord is good in that he does not allow the Laodicean church without a strong, strict warning to say, you're my sons. Repent. Right. Yeah. yeah.
Yeah. Okay. Well, let's just keep going. Yeah. <laughs> um, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I think I'm far from my mic here. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Corey, is this a passage of scripture um, best suited? Not saying that people haven't used it and, and people have come to know the Lord, but fitting this within its context, help us figure out, um, is this passage talking about those that have not heard about Christ and the Lord um, invites them to come to know him? Or is this a verse about those who already know about the Lord and the Lord is inviting them in a relationship to say, hey, repent and come back to me. Help, help me figure that out and situate it in its context here. Well, I think based on what we've already said about the Lord disciplining those whom he loves and he chastises those whom he receives. And so like we, we can't look at this and say that that God is calling them or Christ is calling them to repentance. Sorry, my phone's ringing. Um, but as far as repentance for coming to Christ initially, so like for salvation, what we can see here is that this, as he's standing at the door knocking, like this is not the first time in scripture that this terminology has been used. Um, in fact, in Luke, Luke chapter 12, um, Christ is speaking to his disciples and he's telling them uh, not to be anxious for what they'll eat or drink or what they'll wear because the father what the, knows what they have need of. And um, instead, they're supposed to seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added to them. Uh, and they're supposed to store up this treasure in heaven, right? And so then, then right after that, you find these words, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes mm. And so I, I think instead of saying, you know, th this is a, a, an invitation to come and be saved, I think this is an invitation to be ready, mm. um, that, that they are to be prepared for the return of the Lord. Because, I mean, how many times in Revelation says, you know, the time is near, those kind of things. And so, like, we always have to be ready for the return of the Lord. And until they repent, they're not ready. Yeah. Um, that there has to be repentance in their hearts. And so he, he's telling them, um, I mean, what is it? What does he say? I will come to him and eat with him and he with, and he with me. So there's this idea of he's inviting them into the supper. And so this, this understanding of this, uh, an allusion to the marriage supper of the lamb that you see later in revelation is I, I think what we have here is that he wants, he wants to be able to um, eat with them in that marriage supper of the lamb. And so he's telling them to repent so that they are ready and they got to constantly be watching. I think that's What'd really good. I think, yeah, not much. Uh, just that, you know, when you look at those passages of scripture where Jesus warns them about the final days um, on the uh, Mount of Olives and, um, you know, in First Thessalonians 5, what characterizes the lives of those that are not ready um, is that they uh, are um, maybe prosperous, but going about their way and not watchful for their own lives. And so when the Lord knocks, they yell, they scream, or they're asleep. 
Like those are the, those are the kind of the phrases that basically you have revelation one, they wail revelation two. It's the, uh, the pregnancy pains. Um, you've got, um, uh, Matthew 24, they didn't see it coming, you know? Um, but those that are ready, that have lived lives of obedience, that have lived lives of repentance, they open the door gladly. He's, he's come, he's here, come Mm -hmm. in. Right. Um, so I I do want to say, uh, just that what an encouragement to a church that is the church of puking, right? <laughs> that the Lord still loves them. Yeah. I think that's so important. Um, I wrote down earlier, hey, they're still a church and the Lord Jesus still loves them. They're in dire condition. This is a strong warning, but he loves them. And if he didn't, there'd be no warning. There'd be no promise, but there's still hope even for the worst of churches. He's not finished with them because there's still a command for them, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, uh, Beale wrote this, and I've got to read this before we go on to the last verse. It says this, um, there is an allusion in this knocking uh, to the book of Song, the Song of Solomon. It's a renewal of relationship. Since the husband knocks there on the door of the bedchamber to encourage his wife to continue to express her love to him and let him enter, but she at first hesitates to do so, Christ also, the husband, with the church being his bride, is doing the same thing. This is the cry of God's God's heart to those whom he loves, Mm. right? So the loving cry of God to a complacent church is I knock, I knock, right? Um, I wrote down uh, this earlier. I said, hey, Christ doesn't end where where many current um, uh, discernment bloggers do today, right? Where you end with just a rebuke and, hey, you better figure things out. He ends with, I love you. I'm coming. Be ready. I want you to be ready. I want you to dine with me. Oh, I mean, that is the picture of a gentle and lowly heart. Is it not? Who cares for his son? Yeah. When I bring a strong rebuke against my son, son, I love you. Right. It matters that you don't do this. Mm -hmm. Um, Why don't we go on the last verse? Says the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. That's not the last verse, but anyway. Um, <laughs> so the idea of conquering, again, we've talked about that over and over, but, but I think first and foremost, we have to realize is that, that we don't conquer apart from Christ. Uh, we only conquer in Christ uh, because mm-hmm. he has conquered not just, uh, not just sin, but death and everything. We, we will conquer with him. And so, uh, Trent, why don't you, why don't you talk a little bit about what it means to sit with him on his throne? Yeah. So, um, I don't think we have to spend too much, too much time on this part unless you want to. Um, but, um, I think it is helpful as we walk through parts of the scripture to see people might see this a little bit different than each other, depending on how they interpret later things in the book of revelation. So depending on where you place the millennium, um, as a specific allotment of time in the future or as something that's ongoing now, um, regardless of where you sit there, what this passage is saying is basically that Christ will even delegate some of his ruling authority to his own people, um, that he rules and reigns um, in and through his church even today, um, but that he will one day even delegate some of his ruling authority to his church, um, whether that be in a future allotment of a thousand years of millennium um, 
uh, or not, uh, or, or, or going into the eternal kingdom, it is for sure for all eternity that the Lord even delegates his authority to his own people, which, I mean, you cannot imagine a more gracious God than that, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, I am undeserving of salvation, much less of knowing um, uh, th- that I will receive um, authority given from the Lord, right? That, that, that's wild. Um, yeah, that's, that's all the comments I have on that. Do you have more? Well, just as you were talking about that, the, the passage came to my mind about the uh, the centurion that asked Christ to come and, and heal. I don't know if it's a son or daughter, but anyway, um, he told Christ, he said, you don't you don't have to come here because I'm also a man under authority. And mm. and, you know, just that just that idea of delegating that authority that there's implies some relationship there, I think. And. And in that, like we, we have to understand that, that Christ was under the authority of the Father, even though they are, they are of the same essence. And so we will still be under his authority. And, and I think there is some picture of this restoration of Eden that's happening in this because Adam and Eve were set up as the vice regents, if you will, the kings of the earth, the kings and queens of the earth. And, and, um, and they gave that away whenever they bowed the knee to the enemy. And Christ is restoring that. Um, he has brought us back into the family and, and he is going to reestablish that authority uh, to have dominion and rule over the earth, just like uh, it was in the very beginning. And so you see a picture of restoration there, I think. So I think we would argue right now that Christ rules. Mm-hmm. There, there's no way you can get around that. Revelation 1 starts with, hey, remember Christ rules. So wherever you think Satan is presently based upon Revelation chapter 20, Christ rules. Um, even in the Old Testament, regardless of whether you think Satan's bound now or bound in the future, um, uh, Satan was bound and has always been to the authority of Christ, right? Mm-hmm. Christ can basically do what he wants. Satan's on a leash, right? Um, he asked who he should, um, you know, you know, go after. And the Lord said Job and Job's like, thank you. Right. But, um, and, and so Satan goes after Job and then basically God's like, but you can't do this, this, and this, and this. Right. Um, so Christ rules Christ. I think we would both argue no matter where we stand on amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial, whatever, right. That, um, Christ is in a sense reigning through his church, Mm -hmm. right. The gates of hell cannot stand, uh, um, uh, What's that verse? I can't think of <laughs> the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. There we yeah, go. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and the gospel is going out right at an unprecedented rate and has continued to do so since Christ's ascension. Um, uh, but there will one day be what is not yet a realm um, in which Christ and his people will dwell for all eternity together, the new Jerusalem. So um, you've got Christ's rule forever, Christ running through his church and then a future realm Um and in the process by which we see um, all of this be consummated, regardless of where we land on, hey, what this will look like, because it's future in some sense to this church, is we're given authority by God. Right. To rule with God. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's wild. Um, and here's what it ends with. Verse 22. He who has an ear. Let him hear once again what the spirit says to the churches. This is the last of the seven letters. I hope we take heart what it says, because next week we're going to look at the throne room in heaven. Anything you want to say? Uh, I think that last verse is very important because if we, if we noticed at the beginning of the churches, that was reversed 
there was always let the let the churches let he who hears he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches came before the one who was to conquer mm. but here the very last words to us to the seven churches are let him hear what the spirit says to the churches i mean it's just an it's just a, the very last thing christ is saying to them is don't miss this yeah. He who has an ear, let him hear. Sure. You wanna you wanna pray for us? I'll do it. God, we thank you for your tender mercy. Though our trespasses are great, though our sins are many, though we are in desperate need, not only for the grace you provided at our salvation, but throughout our sanctification as your people. Let I pray that you would continue to convict us of our sins. Lord, as loving children, as you love your children, Lord, I pray, please do not let us go. Lord, your word says you will not. We thank you for that. Lord, we invite conviction because we know it will make us pure. Lord, help us to hold fast to your word. and Seek your face so that we know even our own condition. The word of God is like a mirror points out to us who you are and how we might better reflect who you are in the world. So it help us to see sin in our own lives. Convict us so that we might repent and help us to be witnesses as you were the first witness. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Uh, we hope you join us again next time. As Trent said, as we look at the throne room of heaven. <laughs>